Well, good morning. Terrific to see you and welcome to those uh, new and visiting with us this morning. My name's Joe. I'm the, uh, the senior minister here at St Barnabas and uh, I hope you're feeling hungry. Uh, what do you hunger for? Uh, I don't mean what do you hope to have for lunch afterwards, having seen all those photos before that you think, well, maybe I'll go for some Thai down the road, that's pretty good, or Vietnamese, or maybe you just cheese on toast will do. I mean, that's, that's a pretty satisfying meal. But what I mean is, what, what's your purpose? What drives your life? What's your ambition? What do you long to see happen? Uh, I realise... That is a deep question for a Sunday morning, uh, particularly early on. But as we kick off this year of ministry uh, with our all-in church prayer night on Tuesday, which I hope you come to, Matt Bales, one of our link missionaries, will be there. Uh, he talks about Muslim evangelism and we're praying for that and for other things. Uh, and all the groups then kick off for the year, the Bible study groups, uh, youth group and all the kids' church and the kids' ministries. It's all starting in the next week or two. And it's good for us as we do that to remember what life's all about and to reignite our hunger, our passion for the right stuff. Most of us are hungry for something in life, whether it's for love, for recognition, maybe it's hunger for a home filled with lovely things or just a sense of control. I mean, some of us just long for that. Um, some of us might be hungry for something that's something outside of the mundane, you know, and going through this kind of rut and we just want a thrill and adventure, something different. Some of us hunger for some peace and quiet, even if it's just peace and quiet in our own minds, in our own heads. But the question I want to ask you today is, do you hunger for God's glory? You've come to know God through his magnificent son, the Lord Jesus. You've trusted Jesus, you know he's died for you, he's alive again, you've received the new life in him, but do you have a single overarching desire to see God lifted up as the greatest thing in your life and everyone else's lives too? Does your heart long for God to receive his worth, to be glorified? And if so, does that passion push you forward and shape everything else. You can tell when a team's hungry, can't you, if you watch sport. I mean, here's our Sharks team over here. Uh, when the Sharks are hungry, uh, that's Cronulla Sharks, um, suddenly the, everything lifts and everyone's passionate. They fire up, they can see the win and they're all com committed more than they have been for the rest of the time. Uh, the intensity ramps up. Uh, everyone does what needs to be do, their hands up to get the ball or not get the ball if they're not the best player. They're, they're, they're running blocks without shepherding. And, uh, in the reading from Corinthians we heard, it was only one sentence. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, I don't know if you contemplate that. It, it means uh, by implication that it's entirely possible to do life to make decisions and to go about even the mundane stuff, things like eating and drinking, in such a way, and he says you can do it in everything, in a way that you're looking to make much of God, to do life in a way that honours him and brings praise to him no matter what you're doing. And that is what we are being called on his people to do with every part of our lives. 
And over the next few weeks, we'll be working through what that, how that works out together, how it looks in real life and how it looks as we do church together, the priorities, decisions, the kind of hopes and dreams that we might have for ourselves and make for ourselves, the plans we have. And today we're setting the foundations. I want to establish for you today why it is that hunger for God's glory should be our driving passion. What gives God the right to be able to call people to do that at all? And I want to suggest today that there are three reasons God has every right and not he doesn't just have the right but it actually makes sense of life to do it, to glorify God with every fibre of your being. Firstly, because God is so glorious, why would we do otherwise? <laughs> Second, because the reason we exist is for his glory. It's the purpose that we're imbued with. And third, because it's what we most need ourselves for a rich, full, satisfying, soul-satisfying life that's filled with joy and purpose, even in the midst of hardship, and won't leave you empty and disappointed, just a husk. It's contrary to the self-identity and self-glorification and self-importance that our world promotes all around us. It's a life lived for someone else's glory, for God's glory. Now let's begin with the God of glory. God is utterly glorious. It kept coming out in all of those readings. You see it right throughout the Bible. But most people, when they think of glory, think of uh, magnificent, shining splendor, the, the gleam of gold and jewels, the, the, you know, the scepter of you know, the British royalty, the regalia. The, they think of the kind of glory that King Herod Antipas wanted as he came out in his royal robes in the morning sunlight uh, you read about it in Acts chapter 12, you can read about it in the, the history of Israel, of Josephus, uh, that he had this shimmering silver robe, that he timed it just right that he would reflect the sunlight as he came out to speak to the crowds. Now you remember what happened though, uh, the people exclaimed, this is a God and not a man, and he lapped it up for about five minutes, but it was his downfall. He was struck down and he died he didn't, because he didn't stop and redirect the praise to the real glorious one, to God. But while God is certainly bathed in splendour, his real glory isn't his appearance, it's his character, it's what he's like. And so we're going to be doing a, a lot of kind of moving around the Bible today. I've got most of the passages on the screen uh, and uh, you might just want to jot them down so you can check that that's really what... Uh, they're saying later, you always want to check what the preacher's saying, go with the word of God uh, you know, and, and test what we say. But in, uh, uh, in Exodus 33 and 34, towards the start of the Bible, Moses is on Mount Sinai. Uh, he's led God's people out of slavery in Egypt and he's given them the law and they're about to march across the desert uh, by God's command to take the promised land. And uh, Moses thinks, okay, that's great, um, but I want some assurances. I want some assurances that that's really going to happen. If I'm going to lead a million people across a desert and conquer a land, you say you're going to give us God, I want to know that's really going to happen. And so in chapter 33, he he begs God to send someone with him who will give him strength and encouragement. And God says in verse 14 in chapter 30, I will be with you. 
He then asks God to make a pinky promise on that. Uh, and God says in verse 17 of chapter 33, I will be with you. I know you by name. <laughs> uh, and, and then Moses pushes his luck one more time and he says to God in verse 18 of 30, chapter 33, Now, God, just show me your glory. <laughs> uh, that'll be enough. I'll, I'll know you really are who you are then. Show me your glory. He wants to see the glory of God. He wants to know God really is glorious enough to be worth taking all these risks that he's about to. Will God be worth it? And shockingly, God agrees to his request. God answers Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. He asks to see God's glory and God says, well, I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And so the moment happens in chapter 34, and that's what's on the screen here. Moses gets to see the glory and the goodness of God, but it's nothing like he thinks it's going to be. It's so much better because the glory of God's not in medals, it's not in wealth, it's not in a cavalcade of cars, it's not his resplendent robes. God's glory is not even primarily seen in his power, though he is more powerful than anyone else. His glory is seen in his goodness. And so this is what happens when God shows his glory to Moses. Then the Lord uh, passed, uh, sorry, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. It's a curious kind of thing, but this is the glory of God. That's what it means for God to be God and that is his true glory, his character. And there's two terms and I've, I've highlighted them there on the screen uh, in the middle of it all. Love and faithfulness <coughs> and throughout the bible the old testament and the new god keeps on being called by those two things uh, and they go hand in hand together his love and his faithfulness because they are the summary of that great revelation of god to moses in exodus 34 the revelation of the glory of god uh, the first term, the first word in Hebrew is the word chesed. You can't say that without co coughing and drinking. <laughs> chesed, uh, which means love. Uh, not in the sense of romance and flowers and things like that, but love in the sense of kindness, generosity, mercy, grace. Uh, it's often translated in the Bible as uh, loving kindness. You might have seen that uh, throughout the scriptures, God's loving kindness. God is that. He's not like the banks who will foreclose on you for mispayments. He's not the hard boss who will sack you for an accounting error. He's loving and generous and seeking to give. That's his character. The other word in Hebrew is emeth, uh, which means truth. Uh, it's kind of where we get the word amen from at the end. We're true. We're agreeing with this, right? We, uh, but it's not true, not just in the sense of accurate information, though God knows everything perfectly. Uh, it's true in the sense of something entirely trustworthy. It's utterly reliable, dependable. Uh, you're sitting 
in true seats at the moment. Uh, uh, you, you, and Aaron's sitting there thinking, yes, if anyone moves these seats, that they're over my dead body. It, apparently, it's International Curmudgeons Day, and Aaron's come as the champion of that. <laughs> uh, but, it, but they're true seats, not because they're the, the best seats in the world or the cleverest seats. Uh, and it's not that the answers to the world's hardest problems have been scratched underneath. And if you just got down that look up, you'd see, you know, oh, here's the secret to life, the universe and everything. No, they're, they're, what I mean is they're completely reliable. You can trust them. You don't have to, when you sit down, go, oh, I don't know if this one's going to hold me up today. Right? They, they're trustworthy. They'll hold your weight. That's what emeth means. It's faithful, reliable, dependable. And that's what God is. He's not a used car salesman who's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. He's not the dishonest politician. I'm not saying they exist. <laughs> but saying what you want to hear, but doing something else later other than what they promised. He is emeth. He is utterly faithful and reliable. And those two words, chesed, loving kindness, and emeth, uh, faithful, trustworthy, sum up the character of God that's presented in the scriptures. If you want to know what God is like, God is chesed and he is emeth. He's full of loving kindness and he's faithful. And those two terms keep popping up all over the place. And so, for example, here is Psalm uh, 117. It's the shortest chapter in the whole Bible. That's the whole thing there. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. Why do you praise God? For great is his love towards us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Love, faithfulness. That's why God is worthy of all praise. Praise the Lord. All the world is to praise him. Why? Because of his character. His character full of love and faithfulness. And that's God's glory, his character of goodness, his love and faithfulness. Or another way you could say that, and it's translated this way elsewhere, is grace and truth. His grace and truth. We've just had Christmas and uh, maybe like me, your decorations are still up. I still see some of the lights down the streets at night in, uh, in Lionel Street. Um, one of my favourite Christmas passages, John 1, we read, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son come from the Father, full of chesed and emet, grace and truth. Right? We've seen his glory. What, what, what did we see? When Jesus turned up, what did we see? We didn't see limos. Right? We didn't see bling. We saw his grace and his truth. Just like Moses saw that day back on the mountain. In Jesus, you see the full weight of the glory of God. Not in those things, but in his character. Uh, the, and we should have been living for his glory and for his praise all along, but by nature, we've been blinded to the glory of God. And like Herod Antipas on that day when he came out in his robes, whose glory are we seeking? Well, most often, I think it's our own glory. But Jesus in saving us changes us and opens our minds and helps us to rediscover our real purpose in life, to live for God's glory. 
which is the second reason to hunger for God's glory. God is glorious. And, and that really should be enough for us to go, I want to hunger for his glory. But he's also made it our life's aim to glorify him. It's why he made us in the first place, in fact. Uh, if you've ever learned uh, the gospel tract way of talking about Jesus called Two Ways to Live, there's lots of good gospel presentations that you might learn, but, but here's a good one. Um, uh, it's got lots of, it's got six pictures and, and maybe you recognise this one. It's about God creating the world and creating us as rulers of the world under him. But there's a Bible verse that goes with each of the six pictures so you can draw it. Uh, this is the first thing that's said in two ways to live. That's the first picture. What, what's, anyone know what the Bible verse that goes with it? Yeah. Revelation 4 verse 11 you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created. Why is God worthy of all glory, honour and power? Because he made it all. God deserves the glory because he made everything. It's all his, the sunsets, the rivers, the mountains, the the creatures that roam this earth, the angels that he made, even us. God made us and so all the praise should go to him. And you think he, he deserves the praise because he, what an incredible engineer and designer he is. But he's also worthy because he owns it all. He didn't make the world and the things in it to give it away to someone else. Uh, you build something and it's yours to do with what you want, isn't it? You do some woodwork and you make a gaming table, for instance. I can't think of who made that. <laughs> um, but you, it's yours and it's, it's for your purposes to be enjoyed by you and whoever you choose to invite to enjoy it. And you're very welcome to come and sit at that table on Friday nights every week and play games with me. Uh, <laughs> the, the world is made by God and it's made for God, for his pleasure and enjoyment. But also it's a testimony to his greatness that he might be honoured by everyone and everything in it. But he's not just made us for his glory, he's also saved us for his glory. God made the world and everyone can see it and deep down knows it whether they want to admit it or not. Right? They, uh, but rather than glorify God, what do people do? What do we do? Well, Romans 1 puts it this way, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him uh, as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. See, it's not that people are ignorant of God, they ignore God. There's a huge difference in there between being ignorant of something and ignoring it. You, you might be ignorant of the law, the police will go lighter on you when you break it than if you are just ignoring it. If they've given you a warning before, you cannot be ignorant of it, you're just ignoring it the second time you do it. We are guilty of ignoring the one we were made to glorify. And not only do we not thank him or honour him as we should, but actually we come up with all sorts of other means of perverting his glory, of worshipping anything and everything but him. 
whether it's the false worship of man-made religions that don't, of gods that don't exist or, or whether it's the false worship of the other things in our lives that we treat as if they are God, family, career, money, sport, car, Facebook. I mean, you can tell what someone worships by a, a bunch of things. You can tell it by the time, energy and money that we sacrifice to those things. I mean, if you just did your accounts and looked at your bank balance and the statement, what would people conclude you worship? Right? You, you can tell it by the fact that people find their significance and identity in stuff like that, fa family, car, career. Right? That's an indicator of what they worship. You can tell by what we find ourselves praising and honouring in our conversations, what just keeps coming up all the time. What do we talk about? Because that's, that's obviously what we love the most. And because we ignore God and exchange God's glory for a lie, we end up ignoring God's ways and making a real mess of our lives. And God hates it. And the result of it all is that we stand condemned before God. But that's where the good news of the gospel comes in. That's what Jesus came to save us from. He came to save us from all that. When Jesus died, he, he nailed everything that condemned us to the cross. It's great news, isn't it? So that when we come to him, instead of condemnation, we receive forgiveness, we receive life, we have hope, we're reconciled to God, we're adopted into God's family, we receive the spirit of grace. We receive all those things that our second reading in Ephesians 1 spoke about that whole chapter is, you know, blessed is God because of all these wonderful things that he's done, chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, saved us, forgiven us, given us his spirit. His, um, but did you notice as John read that, that there's a phrase that keeps coming up again and again uh, uh, that actually gives a reason for why God did all that. He didn't have to do any of it for us. But he saved us, chose us, adopted us, all those things. Not because he's a nice guy, which he is, but, uh, well, for example, in verse 5. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. Or in verse 12. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be... For the praise of his glory. Well, verse 14, God gives us his spirit now to be with us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Why? To the praise of his glory. God is glorious. His character is unmatched. He's full of loving kindness and faithfulness, grace and truth. He, he made us to glorify him and he's saved us to glorify him. The reason he's given you Jesus, forgiven you, cherished you, given you his spirit, called you and his family, is so that you might come back to your senses and I might come back to my senses and live out our true purpose, which it should have been all along, of living to the praise of his glory. But the scriptures actually point out one other reason, at least, to hunger for God's glory and live for his glory. And that is because there's no other way to find true joy and satisfaction. When we ignore God and walk away, when we exchange the truth of God for a life, when, 
when we seek to glorify ourselves or live for things that are not God as if they are, we're, we're always going to lose. Right? It's always a losing prospect. Right? You, you see people whose lives are a sham and it's, it's always going to come undone, isn't it? We'll certainly lose in the long run because of the judgment to come, but the reality is we also lose now because living for a lie is a hopeless way to live. The choices we make when we do are self-defeating. We end up in a bitter cycle of trying to find joy and satisfaction in yet one more thing that's, that's going to fail to deliver. Whether we're worshipping ourselves or fake gods or things of our own imagination, they, they just really cannot bear the weight that we put on them and so they're doomed to disappoint us. And so you buy the new car and you think, this is fantastic, I'm, I'm so happy until three days later and you're like, oh, there's a better one over there. <laughs> um, when we're saved by Jesus, we're reoriented back to a life, live for God's glory and honour and all of that changes. Last week, as we finished up Philippians, we heard about the peace of God which comes from rejoicing in the Lord and bringing our concerns to him in prayer and filling our minds with the good things of God. It's, it's, it defeats anxiety. If you weren't here for Philippians 4, worth going back and watching last week's service online or get a physical copy if, uh, like Aaron did during the week. Uh, but it's more than that. God changes our hearts and desires so that more and more we want him. We, we start to say with the writers of Psalm 42 as the deer pants for the water, streams of water so my soul pants for you my god my soul thirsts for god the living god that's a picture isn't it of someone wanting more and more of god hungering for god well thirsting in this case but i want to take you to another psalm where we're given the most astonishing promise when, when we're like that. It's Psalm 37 and verse 4. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Read that again. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Now you could read that as some have and take it to mean if I put in a bit of effort to look like a Christian and go to church at least occasionally, maybe pray a bit, say grace at meals, give a bit of money to church uh, when the plate comes around, then God's going to give me whatever I really, really, really deep down want and desire. <laughs> He's going to give me the Porsche. He's going to give me good health. He's going to uh, make it so I win the lotto and, and spend the rest of my life on the beach in Tahiti. Um, Whatever you want to get, delight in the Lord and you'll get it. Uh, some people read it like that, but it's not what it's saying, is it? You think about it, look again. Take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What, what will your heart's desires be if the thing you delight in is God? What is your delight? What will you want? You'll want God. Delight yourself in God and he will be yours. And you'll be filled. 
And, and like in Philippians 4 last week, when you rejoice in the Lord, you won't be torn up and anxious about all those other things and forever caught up in the endless cycle of pursuing and getting and failing to be satisfied yet again by things that won't deliver. You'll have the very thing you want and you'll love it and you'll be satisfied. You'll have God and you'll have him now and you'll have him forever. And no matter what you're faced with in times of plenty or times of little, you'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul from last week, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation because you know the Lord of glory and you know you're safe with him. You know he loves you and he's with you. And you know what matters most in life. You have a new soul-satisfying purpose to live for his glory. And you have true joy in it. See, God isn't asking us to glorify him at the expense of our joy. He's saying, find your true joy in me. Find it in my ways. Find it in my love. Find your joy in pursuing me. But let's wrap up and, and ask, what does it look like to hunger for God's glory? Well, I've got four observations I want to finish with very, very quickly. The first is that being hungry is not the same as starving, and it's not the same as being hangry. Uh, starving is what you have when you don't get enough to sustain you, and it kill you in the end. Star starve yourself of God's glory, and you'll ba be back with the world needing to be saved. Being hangry is what happens when you're cranky and snapping with everyone and you realise it's because you haven't eaten in a while and your blood sugar has dropped and what you need is a, a cup of tea and a bicky, right? And, and you have that and suddenly everything's better, right? Maybe you can think of hangry Christians who are complaining about everything. The curmudgeons <laughs> who are complaining that no one else knows God like they do and they don't worship him properly like we do and, you know, um, that's more likely in most cases an ego trip rather than being hungry for God's glory. Now, being hungry for God's glory is making your life's ambition and uh, driving force that in everything you do, everything you say, everything you set out to accomplish, everything you take on, everything you give up, that is all done with the aim of wanting to see God's name be great. Whether I eat or drink, or whatever I do, I want to do it for the glory of God. It will mean, secondly, having the right perspective on everything, an eternal perspective, the kind of perspective that says the real treasure that we have is the gospel and we are just jars of clay. The perspective that means we can go through struggles and hardships, taking a stand for Jesus. Um, that, and, and when we do, we can just think of them as light and momentary troubles that are producing an incomparable weight of glory in us. That perspective that says what really matters is that other people are new creations, that they're reconciled to God through Jesus and so we go as ambassadors with his message. American preacher John Piper um, talks about a sign, a, a poster that his parents had in the living room uh, on the wall growing up. You know, you have, you've got Christian family, they have posters everywhere with cats and mountains or whatever uh, it was this only one life will soon be passed only what's done for christ will last it's a quote from a, a theological ct stud from uh, i think the uh, 1800s yes yeah you you're a kid you ignore it right you just kind of oh that's the nice poster they have up on the wall it's a piece of art 
Um, but it wasn't until he committed his life to Christ later on that he finally understood it and embraced it. Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's the perspective of the person who hungers for God's glory and of the church that hungers for God's glory. And having that perspective means we start to delight in the things of God. They become most precious to us. And over the next few weeks, we're going to tease that out. How being hungry for God's glory means hungering for God's life, that we'll start to hunger and thirst, as Jesus says, for God's righteousness. Wanting to live his way, organise our affairs so that we love what he loves and live the life that he's called us to. How it means hungering for God's word, that we long to know him deeper and more intimately through his scriptures, that we might start to think like he does and anchor our faith in, in the truth of his word. How it also means hungering for God's heart for the lost, God's heart for mission, that we go and make disciples of Jesus as he's called us to, as his ambassadors, knowing that's the job God's left us with. Are you hungry for God's glory? Is your life about seeking to draw attention to our great God that we might make much of him? Is that our life together as his church? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It's not for your glory. It's not for our glory. It's for the glory of our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, you are the glorious one and we we thank and praise you that we can reflect on how worthy you are to receive all glory and honour and power. You created us and, and in your wonderful love you've redeemed us. You've given us a new life, a new heart. And so we pray, please, that we would cherish you and love to see your name honoured in our lives and the lives of those around. Help us to stand firm for Christ, have an eternal perspective and delight in your things, your ways, your word, your heart your life. We do pray this for Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.